All right. So, uh, before we got into uh, Easter, we kind of went over this sermon series where, you know, we kind of looked at what it meant to be a family, you know, in a church family. Um, and, um, you know, I thought that that was really, I thought that was really important. And that made a lot of sense to talk about that, especially prior to Easter, because, the, you know, one of the things and the comments that I kind of made throughout was that uh, when Christ came and he died on the cross, he, he did come and he did die for our sins that I don't mean to trivialize eternity. Um, but, you know, one of the big, important, significant things that he did was he actually took us and welcomed us into this family. And especially as, you know, on a lot of different levels, I mean, we're, you know, brought us into this like, you know, almost priestly family, you can look at it. Um, you know, by making us individuals who are kind of worthy of reaching eternity, but then also as individuals that, you know, I'm pretty certain none of us today are, you know, kind of 100% ethnically Jewish or Hebrew or anything, um, you know, kind of brought us into this family of like the children of God, so to speak, in a way that maybe people didn't quite understand at that point in time. And, and you know, that's a really significant distinction because for the longest time, um, you know, you had these individuals, these, you know, the legacy of the Hebrew people, um, and I word it that way very deliberately, that had it in their head that just simply because of who they were or because of some of the things that they did, that automatically made them sufficient in the eyes of God. That everything else, when it came to what it meant to be a child of God and everything, was almost just kind of automatically bestowed upon them because of kind of who they were, kind of what their identity was, or kind of how they lived day to day, and that the heart actually didn't really matter as much. And what that led to was kind of this rash of uh, what I'd call bad religion. And I know a lot of times as individuals who, and I consider us this way, you know, that are, that are more evangelical in, in nature, you know, we tend to think of the word religion as being a bad word. And, and, you know, not for bad, you know, not for lack of a reason, you know, religion uh, has been used as a bludgeon many times, you know, in the past. I mean, in history, it's been used to rationalize some really awful, horrible things. In, um, you know, our own lives, you can, you can see people using religion as a way to kind of other people who really are just trying to, you know, figure things out, figure out life. Um, so, you know, religion has had a bad rap, but, you know, there is such a thing as good religion. And, when we look at good religion, you really have to start looking at what does God actually call for. And God does call for certain things, and it may not be certain things as far as like you should have a certain order of worship or you should have a certain style of music. I've always thought it's kind of amusing when uh, you look at a lot of churches that will sit here and look at contemporary music. I think at our, at our you know, the, the church a lot of us came from, I, I'm, I'm one to say that I've heard this anecdote several times of somebody who at one point in time kind of walked in and scoffed when they heard like the contemporary music and said, that's just kind of, that's just so irreverent, that music they're doing in there. That's not like, that's not like real, real music that really like, like glorifies God. And I was always amused at that because when you looked at the music that they would sing to, there were all these hymns that were like written in like 1938 or 1957 or something. And I would think, Yes, because I am sure the Lord Almighty was sitting in heaven for the last 1,938 years going, I wish somebody would finally come up with a song that properly glorifies me. And then someone in the 30s wrote a thing in a Baptist hymnal and God went, that's it, you figured it out. I don't want it to change anymore after this. Um, it's always kind of how I imagine that, that conversation going on in their heads. <clears throat> but the reality is that 
What matters so much more <clears throat> than kind of our forms and our practices is the heart with which we, we choose to worship and serve God. This is something that we did talk about a little bit in our, the, the last sermon that was in that family series, that you can do all of the right things. You can check off all of the boxes, but not be any closer to God than an individual who's sitting on the street, kind of babbling incoherently, that doesn't have any idea who Jesus Christ is. If your heart is not oriented towards God, then everything else you're doing is just the, the clanging of symbols, to use the biblical phrase. Well, this is exactly the type of church. And <clears throat> as we sit here and we talk about this, I'm going to use the, the phrases church and temple kind of interchangeably here. This is exactly what you see happening in, in kind of the, the church, so to speak, that existed in the last book of the Bible, just prior to when we get to the New Testament. And I know a number of you guys have heard me, uh, I reference it kind of a lot, but I know you guys have heard me talk about, you know, the book of Malachi before, but the, there, there's a reason why I keep going back to it. You know, certain books of the Bible, as with a lot of people, I think, uh, you know, I, I kind of start gravitating towards because they're just so applicable to where we are today as a culture and a people and all that kind of stuff. You know, I know I'll talk about Exodus, you know, because there's that whole idea of what we talked about in, at Easter about, you know, people constantly wanting to, like, go back to Egypt because it looks better, you know, in the here and now. And uh, when it comes to, like, the, the letters of Paul, there's certain ones I go to because of just, like, the impactful lessons that, that they talk about. But one of those books I keep going back to is Malachi because the state of the temple at that point in time just so accurately resonates where I feel like the mainstream church is today. It's the main reason why I've continually you know, made the comment that I kind of welcome the collapse of the Christian society because I see that Christian society in a lot of ways being a perfect mirror image of exactly what was happening in the book of Malachi. Because what you had are individuals at this point in time uh, who feel like they've kind of gotten past a lot of their trials and tribulations. Not that there's not any more danger, but just that they have history now at this point. I mean, you figure <clears throat> in the book of Malachi... The people of Israel basically have gone from Abraham, sons of Abraham, Joseph in Egypt, 400 years in Egypt. They've been in slavery. God saves them, brings them into the promised land. <clears throat> Go through the promised land. They have their, the, the period of judges and they have periods of kings. And then they end up you know, getting cracked apart into two different you know, nations kind of after, after uh, Solomon. And then you have... Uh, the, 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 you know, part of the kingdom getting, you know, obliterated and the other part of the kingdom getting sent out to exile in Babylon. They go there. This is where the first time they write down anything in the Torah, by the way. So, like, they go over there. They write the stuff down. <clears throat> they're able to come back. All of that history happening through divine intervention of God. <clears throat> so, at this point in time, these people, you have to imagine felt like they had a pretty rich, full history, right? At this point in time, it's pretty clear that God favors you as, as His chosen people. And so at this stage in the game, they're kind of mature. They've done all their development. And so they started kind of settling into their traditions and their rituals. That's really what kind of ended up happening after everybody came back from Babylon and they, they rebuilt the temple and all that kind of stuff just before we hit uh, you know, the, the New Testament. You end up having them, you know, kind of establishing a lot of the traditions that Jesus would see around him. And as a result of that, people got into a groove. They had their Christian society that they had established at that point. And everything was great, right? Except for the fact that because it had become such a mundane thing, 
all of a sudden they lacked the heart that went into it. And what you can see in the book of Malachi is this prophet Malachi just excoriating the religious like order and elite and everything because of this blasé, mundane way that they're doing everything. They're just existing in their faith. And when you look at how God wants us to live in our faith, he, he doesn't want us to just simply exist. <clears throat> Something we see in Revelations, that's one of these, you know, one of these great coffee mug verses that gets repeated a lot, is in Revelations 3, 15 through 17. I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, pure, blind, and naked. That picture right there, it, it, I hate sitting here taking like apocalyptic imagery and heaping it onto us because I think sometimes that conveys the wrong thing. But right here, I mean, this is very, very much what we have become. This is kind of what the temple was in the book of Malachi just before another great shift in God's actions, bringing Jesus Christ, the Messiah, here to earth. So I'm not sitting here connecting these dots to explain to you that, you know, oh, well, you know, therefore I think Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. I'm not going to sit here and, and claim to know a time and place of any of that. But what I am trying to point out, though, is that there is a very clear picture of God's disdain for individuals who simply waltz through their faith, not ever challenging themselves, not ever growing, not ever actually doing anything constructive coming from the heart when it comes to their faith. So let's look at Malachi. What exactly are we talking about? Because, I mean, so many of these things, I mean, once again, their, their practices are so different than us, but at the same time, the behaviors you're seeing are so similar. So if we start in Malachi, we're going to hover Malachi for a while. If you go to Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6, we just look at the first half of verse 6, then you're going to end up saying this. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. I'm going to stop right there. When you look right there, it's... It's an obvious thing. Think about how you treat someone you respect. Like, think about an individual in your head that you truly respect. Now, when that person is talking to you, how do you, how do you interact with them? You know, when you, if that person asks you to do a favor, I think that's probably the, the best one. That person asks you to do something. You truly respect them, and they say, hey, go over here, and can you go pick up this thing for me? You know, can you go, whatever, sweep this thing up, whatever it is. What is the attitude you're going to have for that person that you just hold in such high esteem? That might not be a thing that you necessarily want to do. It might be inconvenient for you to do, but just think about the heart you're going to have because you so respect this individual. Now what I want you to think about is what happens when you feel like God's asking you to do something. Does your heart exhume that same feeling? Does it invoke that same emotion where it's something that you go, I want to honor this person, or does the sense of inconvenience overwhelm that? Does it become something that we end up looking at God asking us to do something and suddenly it doesn't reflect somebody that we respect? Maybe it reflects more somebody that we kind of begrudgingly know that we need to follow. It may even be worse than that. It may even be somebody like a, it might be no different than a speed limit sign that we sit here and say, you know, well, it's there, but, uh, you know, I mean, I can, yeah, if, I, if, I, if, if, I, if somebody's watching me right here, then yeah, I'll sit here and follow up. But other than that, I mean, look, no one's going to pull me over for nine over. It's fine. 
Some of you are thinking that's slow. I know. <laughs> Trust me. I've already got. I've already. I've already gotten some comments from my parents who are like, "You guys drive different, Virginia. Even you drive different." I'm like, "Well, this eat or be eaten up here." Um, but you know, still, you know, you kind of look at how we act whenever we feel like God is calling us to do something. And so often, if you were to just take that, like take the best of intentions completely out of the equation and just look at how we respond to us feeling like we have to do something, like we have to serve somebody, like we have to forgive somebody or whatever it is. And what is our attitude towards being asked to do something for somebody we respect versus how we treat God? It's not always saying that we have to sit here and go, man, that's awesome. I really wanted to sit here and give up everything that you know, I had going on to be absolutely exhausted. Like, it's not saying that you're, like, elated to sit here and torture yourself, but it is saying that, you know, somebody you respect tells you to do something, and, you you know, you feel like you need to go do it. So what was happening at this point in time is, and what we're going to see as we dig down into this a little bit, is this was exactly what was happening. People were going through the motions of everything that God had asked them to do, but they were doing it in the absolute cheapest way humanly possible, where they could somehow rationalize that they were checking off all the boxes, and therefore, you know, between me checking off the boxes, I'm born into this, this is kind of who I am, I must be good. But God says a very different thing. So if we continue on to that second half of verse 6 and go into verse 8, we see this. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? The response, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say, the Lord's table is contemptible. Verse 8, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. What you're seeing is this kind of back and forth conversation taking place between the people and between God. Where the people are honestly kind of aghast at being said, like, why, why are you accusing me of not loving God? Am I not offering the sacrifices that I'm being told to offer? I'm showing up to the temple. You could imagine this being the modern-day equivalent of saying, I'm coming to church. I'm sitting in the chairs, which are very nice, comfortable chairs. So they are good chairs. Uh, <clears throat> but I'm doing all the things. Like, I'm, I'm showing up. I'm doing more than my neighbor's doing. Like, what? What, what else do you want, God? Uh, aren't I doing well enough? And what you end up seeing is Malachi pointing out that even though these individuals may be doing some of the basics, they're offering the sacrifices, they're taking shortcuts. We see references in here to talking about blind animals, to talking about lame animals, like animals that are not as good. And where that becomes such a problem is if we sit here and we were to, d- to dive into it in, in, in sermons and years past, I've done exactly this, but you, know, you can trace what God asks of his people. And here's the thing. Uh, when you make it just about slaughtering animals, then all of a sudden it makes God sound really bloodthirsty. And that's not what it's about. Like, there's something more to it than that. If it's just about killing animals, like, God can do that without you. Like, it's, it's about being willing to give up your very best. And so when you actually go back and look at it, all of these conditions of these sacrifices that you see in the Old Testament, this, this good religion, was God saying, I want you to offer me your very best. We have this phrase that we don't really resonate with a whole lot here, but, you know, that talks about first fruits. And we talk about first fruits, it means exactly what the word implies. It's your first, it's your best. It's when you go out and you sit here and you have an orchard that's full of 
brand new fresh harvest of fruit everything is pristine and beautiful and all that are you going to go over there and pick the rotten apple that has a bunch of holes in it and say this is going to be the one i'm going to choose to eat or are you going to go in there and you're going to find the very best apple you can find in this pristine orchard and say this is going to be the one i have of course you're going to pick the pristine and so what you see in the old testament law what you see in kind of this what we call the levitical law are these commandments for God's people to choose the very best that they have. Not from their spare, but from their first. Before they've considered anything else. Think about that. Before they've considered how much am I going to need to store for the off-season, how much am I going to need to store for my workers or for my family, before anything else, the first thing I do is give to God. Because if it wasn't for Him, I would have none of this. And so I need to give Him my first. And so what was happening at this stage within the life cycle of the Hebrew people where they were going and they were offering everything, but they weren't offering their first fruits. They weren't giving their best. What they were doing is they were going to their animals and their livestock that was already trash anyway and that they weren't going to be using. And then they would say, I'll bring this for sacrifice. So I'll bring the animal that's lame that can't walk because I, I don't want to read this one with something else if there's something wrong with it. Uh, I'll, I'll take this one, and this will bring the one that, that be the one that I take over. And when you look at this, quickly what you start doing is instead of your actions treating God as if he is a master of your life, as being somebody who died for your sins, who gave you immeasurably, and then, and then blessed you immeasurably as a result of that, instead we start treating God like a beggar in heaven, just just asking for whatever spare things that we may have laying around. That's exactly what is taking place here. And so the way that you see God communicating through Malachi is ascribing that as being detestable. And that's kind of phenomenal if you imagine that today. Because what you can imagine is somebody who comes up here and does music every single Sunday, but maybe does it because they just like standing in front of people. Somebody who maybe, you know, prays the most, but... They pray the most and they're doing it so they can just talk about how they're praying instead of actually connecting and growing in God and convicting themselves and challenging themselves. Like you start painting a picture of somebody who could on the outside be doing absolutely everything right, who could be pastoring or whatever, but because they're doing it with just whatever extra thing they have laying around, it's just kind of some hobby or it's just some neat thing on the side, uh, it, 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 it loses all of its potency. All of a sudden, it kind of ceases to be the first fruit, and it starts becoming the pocket change that I give to the beggar God that I now serve. And that just doesn't make any sense, but that's exactly what was taking place. As we continue reading this, we go into verse uh, 9 and 11, and we continue to see how God feels about this idea of giving less than our best. <clears throat> In verse 9, And now plead for God's favor. favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incest and pure offering will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. When you look at passages like this, you kind of start getting an idea of how God's glory predates our practice of religion. And because of that, anything that we're doing here, anything we're serving, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that we're giving that beggar enough food to get him through the day. 
You know, God doesn't cease existing if we stop worshiping Him. In reality, God was glorious before creation. God was glorious before mankind. You know, God was glorious before anything around us. When we look at the entire purpose of the Bible, the purpose of the Bible doesn't point to us, and it doesn't point to even us getting salvation per se. It points to God's glory, and that is the only thing it really points to. The blessing that we get to enjoy is that God chose to represent and reflect his glory on this creation through a being that he would create that would be in his own image, which is us, and that he would endow us with certain things that that allow us to be able to choose between good and evil, and, and that even when that amount of sin would come into it, this would be an opportunity to demonstrate that God's glory cannot be overshadowed by the temptations of man. That Satan cannot overcome what God has made good. And so when we look at the entire story of the Bible, everything in the Old Testament, the coming of Christ, dying on the cross, dying for our sins, conquering of death in the, in the, the, the empty tomb, and then we see everything in Revelations, the whole point of everything is not just a thing saying, this is all just a little story to tell you how you're all precious little buttercups and how really God should just be happy to get you to pay attention to him any way that you will. The whole point of this thing is to explain to you that God is glorious, that God is powerful, and God is good and just in all of these things. It's the blessing that we have that we get to participate in this. And this is why you see God looking at this and looking at these individuals who are offering lesser uh, offerings and lesser practices of faith and, and, and worship and whatnot and says, if you're going to do this, you can just stop. I don't need your temple. I don't need your religion because I am glorious and I will be glorious with you or I will be glorious without you. It is for your benefit that you get to participate in this relationship with me and I will be reconciled with my creation. I would love to do it with you and that's why I'm here. But if you decide that you don't want to do that, I don't need you because I am still honored and I am still glorious. Do you see why I like this book of Malachi so much? Because I think about the church today from the most old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy, whatever churches in our nation to churches that are big, massive, growing successes and all that kind of stuff. And you look at it and, you know, I'm, you can't see what's inside the hearts of different individuals. You absolutely can't see that. But you look at how people take that and then try to apply it to their individual lives and it's like it's totally lost. I sit here and look at all the people that, you know, pack churches every single Sunday, and I think, man, we have so many people in church. Why is there still on every other day of the week so much pain and hurting and unforgiveness and hostility and, and anger and all of these other things that we see ruining our world? When I sit here and I look at all the different actions that are taking place, you know, I'm not going to sit here and dive into a debate on, you know, guns or mental health or whatever. When I look at all of these acts of violence and everything, one of the things that I think is absolutely common to every single thing you see is this amount of anger and angst and this idea that we are all adversaries to one another because we disagree or we think about this world differently. And when you see that, it's hard to look at it and interpret it as anything other than us looking at the God of politics or the God of culture or the God of our society and our nation and viewing that as being higher and more revered than our God who came to die on a cross for our sins. 
That's what it seems like is taking place. And so when I look at the book of Malachi, I see a perfect reflection of where we are. I'm not, you know, whether it's this area, this nation, this world, whatever it is. But the thing that we live in today, you can see reflected in this. And so the one thing that we as individuals can take away from this is that this is God looking at the religious elites and calling them to task. And so how much more can we take out of this to look at this and to say that, God doesn't want me to sit here, come in and punch the ticket. He doesn't want me to come in and, you know, do all of the Jesus-y things if my heart is, is crooked and twisted. That's what truly matters. It's one of the reasons why, you know, even my own ideas, I feel like, have changed so much about how, like, how to implement faith and religion, you know, from like a, like a church perspective. Because I, I, I feel like I look at so many of the ways that we've, we've been brought up and so often we just kind of default to say that the way that I know church in the past is, is that's just what I think is right. And what's devoid in that conversation is what do I feel like God is calling me to do? You know, I don't know what's going on in the life of this other individual. I see their actions and I can easily judge their actions, but I don't know what's going on in their life. So instead, I'm going to try to connect with them on a heart level. Instead of looking at a Christian and saying, that Christian is a good Christian, and this Christian is a bad Christian, based on their practice of religion, maybe instead I need to focus on trying to understand their heart and getting to know their heart and see if they have a heart that's truly bent towards God. Because what I might find out is that the individual who looks like the dreg of society might have a heart bent far more towards God than an individual that dresses nice and shows up every single Sunday. What God cares about is the heart, and it's another one of the reasons why I constantly find myself going back to another verse in Hosea 6, 6 that says, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. Even Christ himself in his own ministry had to constantly remind the Pharisees and the religious lead of this exact same thing. Because even after Malachi, 400 years had gone by, and some, some crazy events had actually happened in that period of time in the history of the Jewish people that you would think there'd be this great kind of, uh, you know, revival and everything of dedication towards Christ, or dedication towards, you know, God. But what you would end up seeing when Christ came to earth was that even after Malachi called everybody to task, even after everything that happened between Malachi, you know, the, that last page of that, of that, and then getting into the next page, which, you know, opens you up into the first page of the New Testament, what you end up finding is that they still didn't get it. They were still wrapped up in their faith and their religion. <clears throat> I, when I think about this, I think about as soon as I made that leap into a contemporary church from an old-fashioned church, and I remember hearing some individuals that had come out of the Catholic church, and they were very, very down on the Catholics. My mentality on the Catholics is always looking and go like, oh, they've been believing and following Jesus a lot longer than we have, so they're probably doing something right. But, you know, they, they had this idea that Catholic equals bad, like Catholic equals cult sin, all that kind of stuff, you know, which is, you know, a, a, little, bit, a little bit being too trite. But, you know, in doing all that, one of the things they would criticize is their dependency on their religion and their order and, and that, you know, if everything was done in this way, then God would be happy. And that's kind of, you know, what they were deriding. And I always thought that was funny because coming out of something that was more old-fashioned into something contemporary, I said, what are you talking about? We have our we have our tradition too. And they're like, well, no, everything's more spirit-led here. And I said, okay, every Sunday at that church, I was like, every Sunday you have one song that's called worship. Then you have the pastor come up and then the associate pastor comes up and does some announcements. And then you do four more songs. And then after that, we have some like special presentation. And then after that is the sermon. And then after that are two more response songs. It was a long service. And then after that, you know, have some other little like, you know, as you go kind of announcements, a prayer out, and then you're done. We do that every single Sunday. 
So it sounds to me like you've just created your own thing that you just said you hate the Catholics for doing. And so what you end up finding is that that's, that's kind of sort of what ends up happening exactly in the lives of these Jewish people is that even though they maybe hit a point, finally, after all these years, after all this Old Testament, where they're no longer doing this whole like thing with like the whole nation going towards God and then the whole nation going back towards pagan things and then going back towards God, like they're pretty much at this point in time on team God, you still have them failing to see that God doesn't care as much about the practices as he cares about your heart. That's why he came here. And as a result of that, God looks at that and says, this thing, this temple that you have literally revolved your entire society around, all the roads literally come back to the temple over here in this kingdom. I would rather you just shut the thing down because I am disgusted with the blasé, mundane way that you are just waltzing through your faith. I'd rather you just stop because I don't need you. I desperately want you, but I don't need you to do this in order to make me happy. I need your heart, and that's what you're not willing to give me. One of the things when we think about our own faith that we have to kind of wrestle with is the idea that sometimes there is a sense of inconvenience to following Christ. The way that I kind of opened this up was talking about how do you respond to somebody that you truly respect and you truly honor. And you know when they ask you to do something, you're not always amped to do it. I have lots of people that I, I respect tremendously. I, I respect John Markham so much. I have emails I have not responded to. And it's not because I don't respect John. It's because it's, it's there's still that like human side of me. It's like, oh, Jesus, I just don't want to do this. Uh, but, you know, you because know, all these other things fall into our lives. Distractions, laziness, all these kind of things. And all these. So you're going to have that. So I'm not trying to say that if every single time God calls you to sit here and go, like, in the backwoods of some small third world country and get shot at by people with blowguns. I don't know. This is going to get offensive pretty quick. But, you know, like, if, you know, God asks you to do that and you're not like, that's awesome. I want to go do it right now. Like, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. But there's a difference between looking at something and saying, I'm always happy to do it, and looking at something and saying, the most important thing is that I respect this thing I've been asked to do. I respect this way I've been asked to act or this way that I've been asked to talk. I respect this thing. So even though I'm pulled towards these other things, I love this more. And this is where I think we start getting into the idea of what it really means to actually have a true relationship with Christ. It's not that you don't have parts of your heart that are getting torn in different directions, that you don't have other things that you want and that kind of seduce you into old lifestyles and all that. All those things may still be there in your, your body, the things that you desire. What, means that, what, what makes it so that you have a real relationship with God is that suddenly the importance of those things start becoming far less than the importance and the premium that you place on what God is asking you to do in your lives. Some things will always be a struggle. Some things will never go away. And what that means is sometimes we will be severely inconvenienced. But I think this is why we end up seeing Christ in his own ministry use phrases like he does in Matthew 8, 12, where he says, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When I hear this phrase, there's this little anecdote that I pulled up from a part of my genealogy, the because the packs have been like in this country since like Jamestown, um, not like, not not like the you know cannibalistic parts of Jamestown, but like like the cool parts of Jamestown. Like, so um, you know the, they've been here a while, and so there's a lot of like weird little anecdotes. And 
and this one that's, that's really, really short, is that there's a guy, and I think his name was George Peck. Um, we'll say he's George Peck for the sake of this story. And it was during the Civil War. And so there was an area where at this point in time, the Packs, who when they came in, originally had this really big plot of land on the Great River in the colony of Frederick, um, got, you know, got disappeared. And then uh, we ended up going to the mountains. So one of the mountains, there's an area that I think is still like a postal code today called like Pax Ferry. And because uh, back then, hey, if you could get across the river, that's big money, right? Because not everybody can get across the river. So uh, what would happen is this was kind of the back roads where the Union Confederate soldiers would use to get behind everybody's lines. And so what would happen is you'd have George Pack in the mountains. And people in the mountains were not up there because they were one side or the other. They just wanted everybody to get done fighting and then just tell me who I got to pay taxes to and I'll do whatever. They wanted to get away from the war, right? So they're up there and the Confederates are kind of, you know, there because that's where they are. And they'd have all this stuff because he's like a merchant, right, with the ferry and all that. So uh, he'd have this stuff that was from the South that was made in Atlanta or Richmond or whatever. And then uh, the Union troops would come through, and they'd come through, and they'd see all this stuff. They'd go, what? This is made in Richmond. This is made in Atlanta, Montgomery. This is contraband. You're under arrest. And they'd haul him in front of the Union captain. The Union captain would take all of his stuff, declare it contraband, and would make him swear an oath of allegiance to the Union. Send him back. Okay, fine. Then the Confederates would come through. The Confederates would go, wait, what's all this stuff you have here? This was made in Philadelphia. This was made in New York. This was made in, whoa, all this is contraband. We're going to arrest you. And then they'd bring him in front of the Confederate captain and he had to swear an oath of allegiance to the Confederacy. And then the Union would come through and they'd see all this stuff that was made in the South. So this happened several times before finally the Union, the, the thing that we have in the diaries is that the Union captain, uh, the third time he had to arrest this guy and make him swear an oath of allegiance, just kind of like apparently sighed and said, George, what are we going to do for you? And he, he kind of quoted this, and he said, Foxes have their dens, and rabbits have their holes, but there's no place for a pack to lay his head. And the Union guy said, go back, I don't, go back home, I don't want to see you for the rest of the war. And he never got arrested again. Um, but in doing that, I guess the reason why I bring that up is because in that instance, this George Pack guy was torn between two forces. You know, He was torn between the Confederacy on one end, and torn between the Union on the other end. Now, in his case, he didn't really care which one won. He's just like, there's a war, there's a big thing, I just want to live my life and be left alone, as a lot of mountain people do, uh, and run my ferry, and that's what I want, so just tell me whoever's going to win out. Well, the difference between that story and the one that we live in is that while we also feel like we are being held in between two forces and often torn from place to place and, you know, being being told by this side that you're bad for being aligned with that side and then being told by this side we feel like we're being told we're being bad by following this side. The difference is that in this case there is something that George Pack didn't have, which is truth. And what we know is that we serve a God of truth. We serve a God of glory. We serve a God of power. And because that is the God we serve, we're not, we don't have to be torn back and forth by two equal forces. Instead, even though the world may still try to pull us back into whatever we have, and it may try to pull us towards you know, things that you know, shouldn't define us and all that, we have something that is greater. And so the reason why I bring that up is because Christians should be short and a little gun-shy when it comes to looking at how another individual is acting or living their life and judging what is happening in their heart as a result of what you see on the outside. Not because you're saying that what they're doing is good or anything, and I'm definitely not going to sit here and go back to that little phrase of hate the sin and love the sinner, but because you look at it and you say, this is an individual that I pity. 
because they're being pulled in between two forces. And the one thing that they haven't figured out yet is that one of them has already won. One of them is glorious, whether you go with them or not. The other one is only glorious if you go along with it. Everything of this world only matters if we succumb to it. But God is glorious regardless of who succumbs to him. So the last thing that I kind of will leave you with is this. You know, as I was sitting here doing this study, I kind of found myself, uh, you know, coming to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. I think there's a very, very, that, that there's this positive in everything we're talking about today that, that is, is kind of profound, but, it, but it's, it's, it's still there. It says this, verse 6 through 7, You rejoice in this, even though you are now for a short time, um, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which is perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the, revela- at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is being described here in this first book of Peter is the fact that our faiths are oftentimes proven through these trials. Uh, there is a phrase I've used with people before where I've said, you know, if you say you have faith in something, but it's literally never been tested, do you really have faith or do you just have a hope? Because a hope is something that never has to be tested. A hope is something you can just kind of vaguely, ambiguously say, oh, I hope there's a God. I hope there's an eternity. I, I hope that I'm forgiven of my sins. You know, I, 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 I hope I win the lottery or whatever it is. Like, you, you don't have to ha- have your hope tested. It could just be hope, right? As the phrase goes, hope springs eternal. Faith is something that you have that has been tested and that has been tried. Something that, whether it's been tried by your life or whether it's been tried by you know, external forces or whether it's been tried because you choose to question the things you've always been told and then end up finding out that, you know what, what I believe still holds true. That's where you really start getting to something that is faith. The analogy it's given here is of gold that has to be purified, that has to be you know, melted down and the impurities skimmed away and, in order to end up having this refined, shiny, jewel or, 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 you know, treasure or whatever it is that, that, you know, you're trying to make with this gold. This is a perfect analogy for our faith and how through the different trials that we go through and through some of these inconveniences, we have an opportunity. So here's the blessing in all of this, that as we look at the inconveniences that are posed to us by being pulled in one direction and then feeling like we're getting pulled in the other direction, we have an opportunity and it is to test our faith to refine what we believe, to challenge the things that we think. I'm sitting up here as like a pastor openly encouraging you, question absolutely every single thing that you have been told growing up. Everything that you hear from the pulpit and everything, challenge all of it. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I am so confident that if you challenge through fire, through your life, through your own skepticism and everything, everything that you hear, that you will arrive at the truth. And the truth is that God is glorious, regardless of what we go through in life. It is one of the few things that I can guarantee that you will find at the end of it. Everything else is your own journey and how God's going to talk to you. And that's why you need to go through and you need to question things. But the one thing I can promise you that you will arrive at is that God is glorious. And the blessing that arises out of that, the fact that I understand that God is glorious and that I've tried that and that I know that that is absolutely true. There's no doubt in my mind that God is power and love, compassion, all of these things that that amount up to this, this simple word of glory. The blessing is that I was invited into that and I get to be a part of that. 
So as I experience the inconveniences of this world and the inconveniences of these li this life, even though those inconveniences may seem like insurmountable things, they are still just inconveniences because God is already one. God is glorious and we get to be a part of his glory. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about all the things you are and all the things you have been in our lives, we just pray that you would, that you would help us to be able to see beyond our inconveniences and our circumstances and help us to be able to see beyond the things that maybe we've, we, we feel like we just kind of take for granted and assume are true. Help us to be able to see the truth that you lived out in life. Help us to be able to see that truth and the things that we do. God, we're so often torn in between two forces that sometimes feel like they're unstoppable. Help us in those moments to have the discernment to be able to see you, to be able to recognize the truth that you gave us, and to be able to choose the thing that may be hard, the thing that may be inconvenient, the thing that may result in risk, and, and all these other things that society tells us to move away from. God, help us to be the thing that you've called us to be in something so much more than what we're, we are told that we are. We pray these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.